Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. On today's episode of Heritage Hunters, famous or infamous, what notable relatives are in your family tree? So I'm like, you know what I'm gonna do? Cause I still didn't have really a good idea of whatever I was looking for. I didn't even know what I was looking for, just looking for whatever I could find. Really, I wanted a picture, I guess. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna call Clint Eastwood. It's always enjoyable to be able to talk about somebody like that, that well-known amongst a wide variety of people that doesn't not doesn't require being into genealogy or something to, to know about. Just started, kind of got the bug. And well, I'm gonna see what I can find. And I'm good at it. Our guests today are Ed Preston of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, whose uncle was Walter Wright Williams, a movie producer, Melissa Frank of North Dakota, whose relative was Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, Linda Slate of Oregon, whose ancestors were patented inventors, Brian Harris of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, whose ancestor was James Harvey Garrison, an author, and Derek Duran Woods of Massachusetts, who is descended from the Pilgrims. Our first guest today is Brian Harris from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, whose relative is James Harvey Garrison, who was an author who lived from 1804 to 1876 in Virginia. Definitely nothing infamous. I do have a second great grand uncle that was hatcheted to death, but uh, that's that's another Halloween story, I guess. I think the most famous I found in my family would have been my fourth great grand uncle, fourth great grandmother's brother, and he would be James Harvey Garrison. The list of things that he has under him, and I've I discovered him probably this time last year. He was a soldier, preacher, editor, a hymn writer. He has two hymns to his credit. A author of multiple books, some of which can be found on Amazon, which are way out of print. So I think a lot of them are just reprints. And he was a missionary. The two hymns that he wrote that he's known for is What We Stand For, he wrote in 1909, and God of Our Fathers in 1911, which I think there's another hymn that's more popular that came like three decades beforehand to celebrate the centennial. So there was another hymn called God of Our Fathers for the Hunter Celebration. So that's totally different. I've tried looking for these. I can only find MIDI files of the actual tune. The music was actually written by somebody else. But as far as being an editor, he actually began his career with C.J. Reynolds in St. Louis in 1874. He, I think he formed his own publishing company, the Christian Publishing Company that same year, but remained an editor with C.J. Reynolds until 1912, according to my notes. So he had a long career as an editor. And in that time is, you know, multiple books and whatnot. His military career, he actually enlisted as a private during the Civil War, uh, the 24th Missouri, promoted to captain and was probably transferred to the 8th Missouri Cavalry Volunteers when he was 20. And at the close of the war, he was actually commissioned as a major. And then when he got out of the Army or the Union at that time, he went off to college and he completed his fourth year degree at Abingdon College in three years. So the more I dug up on this guy, the more interesting he became. 
So, and then Abingdon shortly consolidated with Eureka College, which is a nice connection because Eureka's most famous graduate is Ronald Reagan. So I kind of like that little connection he has there, even though decades apart. Just digging into him more and just the interest is kind of a curse because I'm also a collector. So I've got to, you know, I've got to find these books. I've got to have them, which leads into another famous relative that I discovered word of mouth. And that would actually be my, who my father said is my grandmother's cousin who played for the AFL, American Football League between 1960 and 1964. That would be Chuck McMurtry, if I can get that right. Or as his family called them, being Chuck the Crushing Machine. So the guy stood six foot and was 280 pounds. My dad said that was very forgiving when it comes to the weight. He was probably more well over 300 and he was a defensive tackle. Um, actually played the 1961 Pro Bowl, went to Whittier College and I think Whittier High School. And that's actually where my dad's from. My dad's from Whittier, California. So to connect him even with uh, who I previously talked about, uh, Harvey Garrison, who was from Missouri and Oklahoma, it seems like this family migrated before and after the to California on either end of the Dust Bowl. There was no migration during the Dust Bowl. So it's, but going back to the collecting thing, if I can bring it back again, being a curse with learning about Chuck Murtry, I had to run out, get whatever cards, whatever programs that he was in there. So to add it to the family tree, besides records, it's pretty cool to have physical items that involved people in your family tree. So again, with Chuck, I've got his football cards. I've got programs with James Harvey Garrison. I've got to find these books. Again, most of them are in print, but they're reprints. But he has a 1926 autobiography, which is totally out of print that I've got to track down now. Yeah, it's called Memories and Experiences, A Brief Story of a Long Life, an autobiography that he wrote in 1926. So not sure if that is self-published or who published it, but I'll be tracking that down. That looks like it was published in 1926. So Amazon actually lists it, but they don't have anything in stock. Like a lot of these here, the such as the story of a century, uh, a brief historical sketch, a lot of that is within his denomination that he preached in. That's and a lot of them look like reprints. And of course, well, there's a couple hard covers that go for $50. But the autobiography, like I mentioned, is something I cannot find. I mean, it's part of two, when I do research, I look up, you know, outside of my family as well. So for my, the neighborhood I grew up in Frankfurt, you know, they have congressmen that are in there. And there's one family that was well-known and I actually found a letter off of eBay from a doctor, but I found his like third or fourth great granddaughter. And this doctor served in the Civil War and her family, we corresponded a little bit over email. I said, hey, I think I have somebody that, you know, something that belongs to your family. And she confirmed it. And they have a hat, a feather from the Civil War, a feathered hat and his journal. So I said, I'd love to get this letter to you. All I did was found it on eBay, just searching Frankfurt, Philadelphia. Never heard back from her, unfortunately, but I still have the letter sitting there. So that, sadly, that's the collecting I do and the hoarding in my life. And then the only uh, other famous relative I have is actually more local to Somerset County. And it's probably the only thing that is named after a relative. 
My fourth great grandmother, Susanna Cook Ross, has a, I don't know the terminology, but Daughters of the Union Veterans of the Civil War, 1061, is actually named after her. Oh, really? um, it's named after her because she had five sons serving in the Union Army at the same time. So they were formed in 2009, and they named their organization after my fourth great-grandmother. I read about James Garrison's life, and it's like, you know, oh, what do you do for a living? Ah, soldier, preacher, editor, hymn writer, author, mission. I was like, wow, that is multiple lifetimes or multiple careers in one lifetime. And he lived to be 89. And he didn't seem to stop. I mean, again, he died in 31 and wrote his autobiography, I guess, in 25, 1926. So he was still writing into his 80s. And I guess the lesson there is don't stop. I mean, obviously, this this man was doing something he loved, something he was passionate about, and it kept him going. So that's, that's why I truly believe it, it's, if you got, if you got purpose, you got something to keep it, you know, to drive interests, you'll be fine. Roots Tech is being held virtually this year from March 3rd through the 5th, 2022, and it's free to all. Roots Tech welcomes millions of people worldwide to celebrate family at the world's largest family history conference and year-long learning platform. With thousands of classes, inspiring speakers, meaningful activities, and joyful connections, Roots Tech brings the human family together like no other event. Roots Tech will begin streaming at 8 a.m. in Salt Lake City, Utah, and continue for the next 72 hours. You can join in at any time and watch what is playing on the main stage, watch one of the over 900 class sessions, visit the virtual expo hall, and connect with other attendees, relatives at Roots Tech, or one of our helpers. Classes begin at any time that you are ready to start them. Join the conference by visiting www.rootstech.org. Joining us today from Massachusetts is Derek Duran Woods, whose relative was Clement Clark Moore, who lived from 1779 in New York City to 1863 in Newport, Rhode Island. It kind of depends on how you define both famous and relative, <laughs> because <laughs> some relatives are closer than others, as right. we know. And, you know, there are degrees of fame. It's sort of like, well, my mom thinks I'm super famous, but I mean, <laughs> there are a few that I can talk about. For instance, I have a lot of, I got into genealogy thanks to my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who lived around the block from us growing up, which was fantastic. But he was a very avid amateur genealogist. In his time, he got one article published in the register in, I think, the same year I was born. He did a decent job. But anyway, he was very proud of my mom's whole side of the family, which is all old Pilgrim New England era and some Dutch New Amsterdam. So going back a long way still in North America. And for someone who has that type of genealogy, a site like FamousKin.com, 
a lot of people are descended from, you know, when when they're the early settlers, you know, they had time to put down roots in the 17th century and there weren't many of them at first. And, you know, there were only so many people you could marry. So everybody's kind of related to each other. And then you extend that out for, you know, 10 or 15 generations to uh, the present day, probably not 15, more like 10, but the there are millions of people. In fact, I've heard that any two people who have a significant amount of sort of colonial New England ancestry are probably related in one way or another if you go back far enough. And, you know, you could probably make that argument for any two people of Western European, you know, and that sort of thing, but no need to get that far into the weeds. So on famouskin.com, I can put in an early emigrant and find out that, oh, I'm 10th cousins with, for instance, Princess Diana or Clint Eastwood or Jordana Brewster, you know, of the Fast and the Furious fame, whose last name is a little bit of a giveaway if you're, for those who are uh, pilgrim genealogy enthusiasts. There are a lot of people, I mean, movie stars, politicians, you know, various U.S. presidents, things like that. So I find all of that, you know, kind of fun. It's fun to look at, but it's it's a little less remarkable because anybody with a decent amount of early North American, you know, or a colonial New England ancestry probably has these sort of like 10th cousin type relationships. And when you think about 10th cousins, I mean, it's like you, a lot of people, you might even have, you know, 15 or 21st cousins and then you get out 10 generations. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So there's that sense of the word, you know, okay, so those are relatives. I don't think I'm going to see, you know, Ben Affleck at my next, you know, family reunion, BBQ get together or anything. But technically, we're 10th cousins. So, you know, maybe send him an invite. A little more closely related to that, the two that my grandfather used to talk about were first is, and I had had the impression that we were direct descendants, as did many of my cousins who heard the story from him also, but um, to a guy named Clement Clark Moore, who wrote or is said to have written a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. The caveats here are, well, there are two. One is that I found out where I'm not a direct descendant from him, neither was my grandfather's. I mean, we're related. I mean, it's we're not 10th cousins, but it's something like I'm like second or third cousins, six times removed. Something like that was uh, when I actually calculated it out. So it's not it's it's, you know, almost within, you know, ancestry DNA <laughs> parameters, put it that way. But it's not um, not not a super close relation. The other caveat there being, and books have been written about this in the last 20 years or so, is that it's there are compelling theories. Um, no one, it's probably difficult to know for sure that he didn't actually write <laughs> Twas the Night Before Christmas. The reason that they make, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting little sub-subject, was that the poem was printed like they were in those days in sort of like newspapers or magazines or periodicals. And it wasn't attributed to him until decades after it had first been published. He never explicitly owned it himself. You know, he never, you know, wrote about it or mentioned it, you know, among anything. So there isn't really a lot of, I mean, I guess he, someone at some point said, did you write this? And he allowed them to attach his name to it. But that was about as far as it went. The other part of the story is that he 
it's very unlike anything else he ever wrote. <laughs> we all know the, you know, the sort of magical little rhyming couplets, uh, you know, tale of this jolly St. Nicholas comes down, you know, like a bowl full of jelly and he laughed and, you know, the children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. Everything else he ever wrote talked about sort of like peevish, misbehaving children and girls. He was sort of this stern, pedantic kind of theology professor who, you know, wrote extemporaneously on some things, but he was not a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, by you, you're not going to read anything else that was ever attributed to him. He was not known for being sort of like a, a bon vivant or, you know, having this sort of effervescent spirit that really comes through in that poem. It just seems utterly unlike him. <laughs> Some people have gone as far as to attribute it to, you know, to theorize as to who may have written it. But I think it's a, it's probably one of those things that's not going to be proven one way or another uh, at this point, just based on what's out there. So anyway, second cousin or second or third cousins about six times removed from the guy whose name is on Twas the Night Before Christmas, A Visit from St. Nicholas. One of my third great-grandfathers, my grandfather, the genealogist, was very proud of this association because this was his mother's grandfather. So obviously he didn't, hadn't met him in life or anything, but, you know, he grew up with this, you know, great sense of pride that we are descended from Bishop Jackson Kemper of the Episcopal Church in America. He was the first missionary bishop of the Episcopal Church, or I think really of most any sort of, you know, part of the Anglican communion, at least in North America. I mean, there were bishops before then, but he was sort of a unique entity. He came from a uh, decently well-off family, or his grandfather was a Revolutionary War officer, and he had been born amidst a pandemic. His family lived in New York, but they had gone up to Woodsy Burg of Pleasant Valley in Dutchess County, New York. He was born there in 1789 and grew up partly in New York, went to Columbia. And at that time, I think still it was, if you were going to college, it meant that you were preparing for the priesthood or the clergy one way or another. I mean, that was what universities did as they turned out ministers. He eventually landed in Philadelphia under the tutelage of a then Bishop William White, and became established in Philadelphia. And as he sort of rose in the church hierarchy, eventually, I have letters that he wrote have come down through the family that I inherited, where he's in Philadelphia, 1820s, I believe, and there are yellow fever outbreaks sort of seasonally every year. So the people who can kind of get out of the city, and he would stay in Philadelphia to help take care of sick people and to conduct services and things like that. So he has letters back and forth to his wife, who was like out in Jersey, sort of where his family was from, kind of out of town, away from the teeming throngs of diseased people. He was married twice. His first wife died within a year or two of their getting married. I don't know of I don't recall of what. He remarried and had two or three children, one of whom was my second great-grandfather, and then his second wife died. On April 2nd, 2022, the Mid-Atlantic Germanic Society is hosting their spring conference virtually. Paula Stewart-Warren will be presenting the following topics. Underutilized research resources from the U.S. federal government, 
World War One era alien registrations, Germanic organizations, Germanic genealogical and historical periodicals, the Mid-Atlantic Germanic Society, MAGS, is a nonprofit genealogical society founded in 1982 in the Mid-Atlantic region. The MAG's mission is to stimulate and facilitate research on Germanic genealogy and heritage and to promote genealogical research of Germanic ancestors who settled in North America. Please visit www.magsgen.com for additional information and membership. Joining us today from Oregon is Linda Slate, whose ancestors, Nathaniel Porter Slate, 1853-1946, and Thomas Benton Slate, from 1880-1980, who lived in Oregon, were patented inventors of several items that we use today. Well, I have two distinct sides to my family, my maternal side and my paternal side. My maternal side is Jewish, and the majority of my recent relatives are my four great-grandparents, my grandfathers on that side, are immigrants from Eastern Europe from the Pale, within the Pale. Connected to that side is Mark Rothko, the artist, and he came here in 1913, mm -hmm. and some of his family was already here, and when he came, he was about seven and they came to Portland, Oregon. Originally, they made a pit stop in New Haven, Connecticut, where some other relatives lived and where he did spend some time later in life. And then they made their way to Portland, where his father was established here as a pharmacist. And unfortunately, his father had cancer and did not survive even a year after he arrived. And he was the youngest of his group. And I am related to him and his father, Jacob Rothkowitz, was a sibling to the woman who is both my great-great-aunt and my great-great-grandmother. So my grandfather, Morris, and Mark Rothko were second cousins, and they're also second cousin once removed. Many people know his work. My mom, as a little girl in Portland, knew his mother, Catherine, and called her Antikata, and they visited just like you visit the little old ladies in the neighborhood, and everybody sort of knew each other. And so my mom did have a minor relationship with her just by default. Mark Rothko's sister, Sonia, her first husband passed away, and she married a man named Makiva Allen. And my mom remembers seeing them at family dinners, Passover, things like that when many people would gather. Mark Rothko, typical struggling artist. And my grandma used to tell a story about uh, him coming back to Portland to visit with his wife, who was not Jewish, and that was not well received by his mother. It's always enjoyable to be able to talk about somebody like that, that's well known amongst a wide variety of people that doesn't require being into genealogy to, to know about. On my father's side, we have Samuel Slate, who was born in 1733, he had a bunch of children, and one of them was Samuel M. Slate, and the other was John Slate, and other relatives I'll talk about. They descended from John. I descend from Samuel M. And one of the gentlemen is John's grandson, Nathaniel Porter Slate, and his father, John Turner Slate, 
Cayman wagon train out here from maybe North Carolina. I have to double check that. But they came all the way up at the same time as the Applegate wagon train, which is well-known pioneer group that came to Oregon and settled many of the valleys and stuff. And they ended up actually coming ahead of the Applegate group. I think they chose to cross a river one day where the other ones decided to wait kind of thing. And they came a little bit earlier, but they had land patents and homesteaded. The Slates homesteaded up near Albany. We have Oregon, Willamette Valley. This area is very fertile for agriculture and he was a farmer. So he established a homestead there and one of his children, Nathaniel Porter Slate, he was born. He had a couple of sons, Thomas Benton Slate and McLennan Slate. And all three of those gentlemen were inventors and mind-boggling inventions that we are still using today. None of them had education above about sixth grade. And my guess would be they were needed on the farm. Nathaniel Porter invented what we call the combine, the uh, combine harvest. He and a gentleman who had a manufacturing company named Mr. Best, they decided to try and solve the problem for Nathaniel, who had created his own tractor, a steam-powered tractor, of getting mired in the mud. If you're farming, you're in the mud. So they came up with a canvas belt system with wooden cleats. Nathaniel owed Mr. Best some money for something. So he told Mr. Best, you know, in exchange for the money he owed, you can take my invention and make equipment with it. And so Mr. Best went to California. Eventually, all of that turned into the Caterpillar company that we know for tracked vehicles. This was a man filling a need, trying to solve his problem to get by, creating something that we use everywhere today. He had invented a hay baler. He called it a baling. We still use his technology today. He had multiple patents. And from what I understand, Mr. Best tried to send him a check for $65,000 later on when he had made money. And Nathaniel Porter sent it back said, he didn't know me anything. We, you know, like they'd squared up and that was that. He invented so many things that were just things we take for granted nowadays. Just amazing stuff. And he did actually get patents on various things. I think he just got patents because somebody probably told him you should have some ownership of this thing you've invented. There's quite a few really interesting articles about him. Nathaniel Porter Slate, he had his son, Thomas Benton, was another fascinating individual. He was also an inventor. I believe he had a fifth grade education and he worked on the farm with his dad, you know, and invented things. And then he went to the East coast to New York. Thomas Benton came up with the process, the viable process to commercially produce dry ice. And he had a company called the pressed air division and he invented these carbon dioxide powered fire extinguisher. And he had several other things that were refrigeration related that he'd come up with, but the fire extinguisher was the only thing that was basically commercially viable to produce at the time. He was way ahead of his game. He sold his company in about, I think it was around 1925 and took the money and built this car, which is considered one of the first motorhomes ever. He'd taken a truck frame and built a complete house with a toilet, hot and cold water, everything. He took the money from selling his pressed air division, which turned into the Dry Ice Corporation of America, which is where the term dry ice comes from. Many years later, the Dry Ice Corporation took a, had a court case saying they wanted to trademark that name. And apparently the court decided, no, the whole world just knows what that is, is dry ice. You don't get to have it. It's going to be, it's just, you can keep your company name, but it's dry ice. 
So he took that money and went back and he went to Glendale, California, and he had this, and he had an idea for a rigid dirigible. So he was going to make a rigid airship. His idea involved air movement. He had an idea for this rigid dirigible that used a fan in front of it to move air past the dirigible, which he envisioned that it would actually kind of cling to the ship the way he had it designed. And it would kind of go around it by and by vacuum suck this thing forward and propel it. The concept was accurate. He wanted to use a steam motor with minimal water for safety and it just wasn't viable. So he switched to a gasoline engine, but it had these fans that by virtue of physics caused this air to go around the back and it had a tapered cone at the back with um, a couple of fins. And then eventually he added a, a propulsion fan at the back to help aid this. He managed to rent space uh, at this airport and they had a giant hangar to build this. And he called himself Captain Tom. Lots and lots of hype. There's many articles online about, you know, the excitement. He named it the city of Glendale. They had the Slate Aircraft Corporation, which I understand some of the descendants are still are trying to kind of revive you know, resurrect a little bit just for history's sake. And he also had patents in conjunction with this about an elevator system that would lower the passengers to the ground. It's all patented and everything. That way the blimp never had to sit down on the ground. He was shooting for being able to travel at 100 miles an hour, which was pretty fantastic for an airship. I believe Thomas Benton had 31 patents in his lifetime. Another thing he was involved with was a variable pitch propeller for an airplane. His brother, Max McLennan, helped him with this, and they were struggling during World War One. The propeller was interfering with the frequency of the radio in the plane. It was causing interference since they were unable to call in airstrikes or communicate with Allied ships, and there was some kind of competition. It was Allied forces competition to design a propeller that wouldn't interfere. Mac and his brother Thomas Benton essentially came up with adding a generator to the propeller and the propeller had to turn at the speed of a 22 caliber bullet and it didn't interfere with the frequency. Mac Slate's statement was because of that propeller, quote, we blew the Siegfried line off the face of the earth, end quote. They were put on U.S., British, French, and Italian airplanes. They needed this propeller and variable pitch propeller is still in use today. On Monday, April 11th, 2022, the Genealogical Society of Bergen County is hosting three diaries. 19th century diarists recorded faithful running accounts of neighborhood events such as births, marriages, and deaths, as well as accidents, fires, unusual weather events, local happenings and celebrations, and even national and world events. These journals are a fascinating look into life more than 150 years ago and a few journals have evolved over time into scrapbooks, layering more history into their pages. Diarists were the local reporters of their neighborhoods, faithfully noting events that went otherwise unrecorded, and some record births and deaths that are not found in official county or state vital records or religious records. The Genealogical Society of Bergen County, New Jersey is a nonprofit society founded in 1973 their mission is to assist those researching their family heritage, assist those who are preserving information about the families and genealogical records of the greater Bergen County area, 
and to offer educational and research assistance to all those interested in genealogical research. Please visit them at www.njgsbc.org for additional information and membership. Our next guest is Melissa Frank, who joins us today from North Dakota. Her relative is Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, who lived from 1830 in Vermont to 1844 in Illinois. Myself, I've been doing it about five or six years. My father has been doing it for decades. And I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. And remember going on trips with him to the Minnesota History Center and while he does research, a little bit bored, wasn't quite into it. We're descended from John Howland off the Mayflower. So here's you know, the hundreds of people who are our cousins and who are famous. So he really knows the like the offshoots, but he also really knows the close family. Like this person is married to this person. Here's all their kids. And then I just started, kind of got the bug. And well, I'm going to see what I can find. And I'm good at it. I discovered I can find some connections where we've been looking for 50 years and I'm pretty good at finding, you know, random history or resources for other people. So yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm thinking about going for my certification, but it's a lot of work. So I'm not quite ready for that. I am related to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion. It's one of the more famous people that we have in our tree. What I know about him is actually not that much. I know more about his ancestors coming on down to my line. So I know he was in Nauvoo. His his mother is Lucy Mack Smith, M-A-C-K, and I'm descended from her brother, Stephen, and it would be Stephen Mack Sr. Stephen was one of the founders of Pontiac, Michigan, and he lived about, it says, 1766 to 18. 26. And then his son, Stephen Mack Jr., living from 1799 to 1850, married a Winnebago woman. Her name that we have is Hononiga. It's really hard to find accurate records. She's not a native princess, but she's supposed to be the daughter of the chief. And then we go down a direct line to his child, let's see, Mary Mack. Then we go down, down, down to my Emma Stocker, who is my great-great-grandmother, down to my father, down to me. Melissa, if you don't mind my asking, is your family Mormon? No, okay. not at all. Just so happens my mother and two younger sisters live in Ogden, Utah. And I think my sister is, one of my sisters is married to a Mormon, but my mother and sisters and I are actually Jewish and my father is Lutheran. So there's really, I think we're kind of Mormons married in. It's really interesting that related to this man who was the founder of Mormonism and your father was very invested in genealogy, certainly do have the best records out there. Absolutely. And boy, do we make use of them. This is something I think my father has done more of the research because he has joined the Mayflower Society. So he had to travel from this branch a little bit. Obviously, the Macs are not part of the Mayflower, but they did marry in mm -hmm. at some point. So, you know, we have a lot of almost like circumstantial as well. You know, census records, there are some birth certificates and the like. Um, Stephen Mack Jr., who married Ononiga, founded a town, Mac Town, Illinois, near the Wisconsin 
Wisconsin border. So it's way north on there. And they have the house is still standing. A trading post is standing. They have heritage days around it. And we visited once or twice. And that's pretty fun there. So I think my father was able to find a lot of birth records and just standard records that you're going to find on Ancestry or some of the other sites linking the people. I know there's some DNA matches to that stalker line. So Mary Mac married Charles Stalker. So we do have a DNA link as well, which is nice. That's the clincher right there is that DNA. You know, I think the ones I know more are the ones that are closer to me. For example, so Emma Stalker. So this would be, I've got to think of the connection. So Joseph Smith, his mother, his uncle, so Stephen Sr., Jr., then Mary. So Mary was the mother of my great-great-grandmother and then her son, Anthony Phillip. And by now the last name is Landra. So my great-grandfather was actually a fairly famous poet and writer in St. Paul. So he had written a book called I Am Mississippi. So it's a book of poems that follows the path of the Mississippi from the, the source in Itasca down to the Gulf of Mexico. And there's some beautiful poems in there. And obviously the book is really special to the family. I think most family members have a copy. I think only about 250 were printed. And every time you go to an estate sale or like a, an antique mall or something, you're always scanning the books for that, you know, that little blue volume to see if you can get your hands on another copy. His father who was Alexander Bernard Landrosh was a Mississippi riverboat captain. And my understanding is he ran aground, wasn't a riverboat captain after that. Yeah. That's really fascinating. That's good stuff. You know, they're, they're so distant that you're never going to meet them. They're never going to acknowledge you, but you're still related. So it still counts. The family member is my three times great grandfather, I believe, that his name was Jean-Baptiste Benoit and originally from Quebec. And he was born in 1814 and came to the United States in the 1830s. And then he settled around the area of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And and we didn't know much about him. We kind of knew when he was born, about. We didn't really know when he died. He changed his name sometime in the 1840s or early 1850s to John B. Landrosh with a slightly different spelling. And so we know more about his, you know, his marriages, his children, where, you know, we've been able to trace his path um, ending up in near Mankato, Minnesota, and then in Wabasha, and then in St. Paul. But then I was able to find when he died, register of the death, and and uh, somebody helped me find an obituary for him, which was fantastic. And then we didn't really know about any of the before, who his family was. And my father had done his DNA, both an, on Ancestry and we ultimately ultimately did a Y-DNA test and we joined a Quebec Facebook group and he just kind of put it out here. Here's the information. Can anybody have anything that could help us? And within about 15 minutes or so, a gentleman started posting baptismal records of, of children born with that name because Jean-Baptiste Benoit is pretty common and around that time. And one of the names really stood out. It's Jean-Baptiste Hilaire Benoit. And there was kind of a light bulb moment for us because his grandson was named John Hillary Landra. And we figured how common could that name be, especially for a man. And then it turns out we were able to, um, both through the ancestry DNA and through the Y DNA, find multiple DNA matches to that family. And then going through the Druin records, we were able to go back another 400 years in his family to the French immigrants. So that was like 50 years of research that my father has been doing. And we know pretty much everything about this man now. I assume they're very authoritative. Mm -hmm. I think 
they've been really well researched and I love there's you know, some websites um, cjutris.org I can't I don't know exactly how to pronounce it but you can click on all the names so this person married this person so click on the, the spouse and here's their family going back 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 and that baptismal dates everything it's fantastic how does that never happen to me for my Polish records <laughs> my paternal grandmother's side it's it's Polish and you know they're in Strickland Wisconsin and we don't have much about them before what kind of Polish records have you used out of curiosity? Not many because I can't read it. My mother knows a little bit of Polish, but I can find, I believe, a census. I kind of know when they immigrated. Mm -hmm. And I believe I found their immigration record. I'd have to double check. And they immigrated around the Chicago area before ending up in Wisconsin. And for that, couldn't tell you. What's interesting <laughs> about that family, it's not like famous to the world, but you know, famous for me. So the last name is Jaworski. And my great-grandfather, Michael Jaworski Sr., was actually a town clerk um, near Strickland, Wisconsin, a little town called Kalish. So my father has some of his records, random letters from when he was a town clerk and other kind of memorabilia. But he also has this huge collection of photographs, tons of cabinet cards of random people in Chicago. And I actually created a Facebook page for myself called Family Tree Time Machine that I'm posting these, trying to return them to people. And I, you know, here's about the time period I can tell from the costume, you know, the photographer name, I find directories. So the photographer lived here at this address during these years. So I can narrow down pretty much when it was taken. I haven't a clue. I'll never know who these people are. And they're beautiful photos and it's really sad that I can't return them. And it's actually kind of a hobby of mine. And I know of many people I go to antique stores and buy the photos, ideally with the names. Um, I have pretty good luck finding the families and, you know, tracking them down, but it's harder to contact a living descendant. Right. But I've had about four or five photos that I've been able to return, which is pretty awesome. But I have a lot more that I'm still trying to reach people. Get ready for the National Genealogical Society's Family History Conference, Our American Mosaic, being held May 24th through 28th, 2022 in Sacramento, California. The 44th National Genealogical Society Family History Conference will have lectures and special programs with an emphasis on researching the diverse cultures that have made California and the West thrive. The conference includes sessions on methodology, DNA, records and repositories, land, Western research, and more, along with the ever-popular BCG skill building track. There are three options to attend, in-person, online at home, and on demand. Early registration runs through March 18, 2022. The National Genealogical Society helps individuals learn about their family history. For the past 118 years, they have been the leader in the field of teaching genealogical research skills and providing a pathway to scholarly work. Visit www.ngsgenealogy.org for additional information, registration, and membership. Our final guest today is Ed Preston from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, whose ancestor, Walter Wright Williams, who was a movie producer, lived from 1908 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
1988 in Rome, Italy. Walter Wright Williams is his name. Uncle Bud for us. He's actually my dad's uncle, so he's my granduncle. That's actually who started my family tree. Uncle Bud is an actor, notably in a couple of good movies, The Pink Panther. He was in The Pink Panther. Probably the last movie that he made that was famous was The 11th Victim. It was an Italian film with uh, Mastrovani. And he also was the producer for all of Clint Eastwood's Spaghetti Western. So he was who started my tree. I never met him. I talked to him on the phone once. It was around the holidays in the 70s, 72 or 74, I think. He was supposed to stop at the house before he went to Europe. He was going back to Italy. And he called the house from the airport and I answered the phone. <laughs> And he asked for my mom and said, I'm not coming. See you later. Got on the plane and never came back. <laughs> Nobody knows. I mean, uh, my mom knew him. My dad knew him, but he, my, my dad never talked about any of his family. We're pretty sure he was gay. So, you know, growing, growing up in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s in the movie industry, that was probably really shunned back then. And over in Europe, it wasn't as fun. So I guess he just felt more comfortable there. Our whole childhood, we would just look for movies that we knew he was in. And we knew that he was in The 11th Victim. And we knew that he was in The Pink Panther. So we looked for him all the time. But the problem was we didn't know what he looked like. So we're like, oh, that must be him. No, that's not him. That must be him. No, that's got to be him. No, that's him over there. We really had no clue who he was. Well, my mom read an article to us and we figured out who he was. And then that movie was hardly ever on TV anymore. We're like, crap. But then we finally were able to watch it and see him. So yeah, uh, my Uncle Bud is uh, my famous uncle, which is pretty cool. Once I started looking for him, I was able to find out a lot of things about him. What I really wanted to know was what happened to him. My brother, John, who was in the service, was in Italy on leave. And we had his address. My mom had his phone number. My brother, John, looked up his address in Rome, walked to his house and knocked on the door. My uncle answered the door. My brother said, hi, I'm John Preston, Jack and Joe's son. I'm here to visit for a minute, if you can. And he literally closed the door on. He said, come back in 10 minutes. Close the door. Uh, my brother went up to a cafe, sat down and... 15 minutes later, went back to the door, knocked on the door, went inside. And my brother John was on leave for like four days. And they spent four days together, which sounded really cool. But my brother makes up stories. So you don't know what's true and what's not true. He went out to dinner with Sophia Loren, Mastrovani. My uncle gave my brother John a book, like a scrapbook that he brought home. And we were looking through it going, oh my God, here he is, you know. Served in World War II on the USS Texas uh, during D-Day and a couple other places. But what was even cooler, I thought, is that he had started a film company and production company with Maurice Evans. And they started a, a production company. And they were actually two of the guys that were producing USO shows for the war. Report of death of an American citizen abroad. Yes. I was able to figure out that he did die. So what I did was, so I actually called the State Department. And I said, my uncle was in Italy. This is his name, his birthday. These are his parents. This is his last known address. Can you tell me if he's alive or dead or anything like that. And they said, yeah, we can. So I sent a, I had to send him an email with all the information. And I got this back probably about two weeks later, three weeks later. And it is a death certificate, basically. Any American citizen that dies overseas or in a different country, the consulate is notified. And the consulate then takes, if there's no family there, takes responsibility for the body. And they make arrangements. What we don't understand is how they did not contact my mom. But what else was really cool, but not cool because I was too late, they kept his belongings and they keep them for 10 years. If nobody claims them in 10 years, they sell. Because I really would have liked to know what he took with him from here that he kept. You know, a watch, a picture of my grandmother, a picture of my great-grandmother, you know, what, you know, 
something like that, you know? But anybody can get this report from, from the State Department. Well, you know what was cool when I was looking for him? I knew that he worked on all the spaghetti westerns and I knew he was one of the producers. So I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? Really, I wanted a picture, I guess. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Clint Eastwood. So I called Clint Eastwood Studios. I did. I got, I, got the, I got the machine and I left a message. Hi, my name's Ed Preston. Um, you know, uh, I know that uh, Clint Eastwood worked with my uncle in the spaghetti westerns and I went through a list of them just you know I said I was you know hoping to find out if maybe he had any pictures of him there that uh, you could share with me blah 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 his name is Walter Williams blah 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 about a day later I was at work because I called from work it's probably in the winter because I didn't have anything to do and I looked at the caller ID and it said Eastwood Studios Eastwood Studios he's calling me back I answered the phone hi Mike King Yes, this is Doris from Eastwood Studios. I'm looking for Ed Preston. I'm like, yeah, this is him. And she said, oh, this sounds like a great story. I wish we could help you. But we gave all of those, any photos or any of the stuff we have for any of the movies that we've done, we don't keep here anymore. And they give them to the UCLA, the UCLA film something or other. I'm like, okay. She goes, here's the number of the curator. Here's his name, his number. Tell him that I told you to call and see if he can help you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> the lady was so nice. I'm like, and it was, apparently I don't, it, was, it was crazy. I called that guy, he never called me back. The Bucks County Archives can be found at the Library of the Mercer Museum. The archives include many government records dating from 1683. These records come from the offices of the Quarter, quarter Sessions, the Register of Wills and Clerk of the Orphan's Court, Prothonotary, and the County Commissioners. Special indexes to county collections include the following. Naturalization records from 1802 to 1906, criminal papers from 1697 to 1786, the quarter sessions, 1684 to 1700. Coroner papers, 1700 to 1900. Divorces from 1806 to 1948. Marriage licenses from 1852 to 1854 and 1885 to 1946. Vendus from 1784 to 1884. Tavern licenses from 1742 to 1923. Deed books and grantor grantee index from 1684 to 1919, wills and administrations from 1684 to 1900, and mechanics liens from 1836 to 1949. At this time, none of these indexes are available online. Please visit www.mercermuseum.org for additional information about accessing the Bucks County Archives. Thank you for joining us today on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production recorded and mixed by me, Barbara May. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their genealogical experiences and personal stories. Be sure to visit us on our webpage, heritage-hunters.com, and our many social media pages such as Facebook, Twitter, Locals, and more. 
Please leave us a review, like our page, and follow us to be sure to never miss our show. If you'd like to be on the show or have an idea for an upcoming episode, please email us at 2heritage.hunters at gmail.com. And that's the number 2, heritage.hunters at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember to like and subscribe to our podcast. We hope you'll join us next month on Heritage Hunters.